So, hi everyone. This is Ashish Gupta. I'm the founder and CEO for Benori Knowledge. KPO or knowledge process outsourcing is a fast-growing industry that has been a major contributor to India's services exports revenue. It offers India a sustainable way to generate employment and grow the GDP. In this episode, your host Akshay Dutt is talking with Ashish Gupta, the founder of Benori Knowledge and a pioneer in the KPO space, having been in the founding team of India's very first large KPO, EvalueServe. Ashish has had an amazing journey of building not just startups but also two of India's most respected private universities, Ashoka University and Plaksha University. In this conversation, he goes through his journey and shares lessons for founders and startup builders. Listen on, and if you like such insightful conversations with disruptive startup founders, then do subscribe to the Founder Thesis podcast on any audio streaming app. I think the even in the younger days when I was growing up, there was a lot of discussion in the house about our country, our great country, and that's why there was always this passion to do something significant in terms of making sure that India develops and, and then all of us give our own little contribution towards that. So actually, in those days, you would either go and join Delhi University or you would prepare for IIT or get into medical. I was most excited about was becoming an engineer. So that's when I also joined the rat race. The IIT JE exam fortunately got through and ended up in IIT. Okay. And from campus, where did you get placed through campus? It's probably become better now, but in those days, actually a lot of us IITians never ended up becoming or playing of engineering. A lot of us went to the US, went into engineering. We did the mix of the two. Although I had got through IIM Ahmedabad, I still decided to go to Carnegie Mellon for my MBA. There also, it was a difficult decision, but talking to a lot of people, they said, look, go out and explore the world and get a global exposure, build a global network. And then since I was so passionately Indian and Desi, you know, my mindset, I said, okay, fine, let's go there for a couple of years, but then anyway, I'll come back. Like from CMU, then did you work in the US or did you come back immediately? Yeah, I'd worked for a year there, but I did not really want to fall into the green card. A lot of people get stuck there because they are waiting for the... Uh, and then it gets converted into what is called the X plus one syndrome. A lot of people keep on saying, we'll go back to India next year. And then next year comes, I just left everything, came back to India without a job, actually. In those days, that was probably the only way of, of doing it. I had come back at a time when companies had basically hired already for the next incoming class. So there were very few opportunities, but I got lucky again. So I've been very lucky in life. I've been blessed uh, on various dimensions. So I came back and then I joined McKinsey. Okay, which was a pretty coveted career path to follow. Absolutely. Okay, so you, you joined as a consultant, like you were solving problems for clients around optimization of business models or go-to-market or cost-cutting, stuff like that. Yeah, classical management consulting. The interesting part was that even McKinsey was young in India at that time. So there were a lot of different experiences in terms of helping out with various aspects of a business. So it was almost like working in a startup. Yes. How did the move to eValueServe happen? Before I joined eValueServe, I, I created a .com. At that point in time, 
model which we had started with was similar to Facebook. But there were, I think, two issues. One was that I actually did not know how to execute. So it's like how to write code. No, no. We obviously hired people to build the product or in the website and everything. But how to execute in a startup environment, right? It's one thing to be in a very large consulting firm where it's a very structured environment. And it's a very different thing when everything comes to you, every decision you have to make, whether it's marketing, whether it's sales, so on and so on. And so the real issue was that it was it was very difficult to really figure out a product market fit or really and, and execute well. But at the same time, great humbling experience because failure teaches you a lot. So from the this a bit of a swagger that one would have IIT, Carnegie Mellon, McKinsey. You come down to uh, Mother Earth and realize that, okay, you are just also another individual and no big uh, deal. And then you learn from your from your failures a lot. Did, did, so this was like a bootstrapped uh, endeavor, like you put in your own money in building the product? A little bit of my own money. Uh, actually, I've been all my savings into that. Uh, so by the time I wrapped up uh, that com I was down to 3,000 rupees in my bank. But we did raise some money from some angels at that time in time. Okay. And so you were trying to do like a social platform, like where people share. You could chat with each other. You could exchange photographs. There was a gifting facility. You could send flowers and cakes. And a very interesting uh, concept called Family Tree. So the company was called, it was around a social networking website. But for your family, you could also develop a family tree which that you might find some long lost cousins or cousins cousin okay and why did you choose e-value serve then once you decided to wind up no so i had some choices at that point in time and of course when you are a failed founder then there are many more people who get interested in hiring you because that it's very rich and very uh, enlightening. But at that point in time, I was getting, I got very excited about this whole startup environment and so on. A very senior uh, partner at McKinsey sort of called me one day and said, he was thinking of starting a company like Serve, and he said, uh, would you like to come and join? So I also knew him and then I anyway wanted to work in the startup environment. So that's why I decided to go. So you were like part of the founding team? Yeah. Okay. And uh, so tell me about the journey of how eValueServe scaled up. How, how did they discover product market fit? What were their growth levers? You've seen that journey intimately, probably from the first 10 employees to, I don't know, it must be thousands of employees now. Forever, I was called the employee number minus one because... I joined before there was anything, right? What had happened is in 1999, McKinsey had come out with a report for NASCOM, the first report. And in that, along with all the other IT services and VPN services, in that report, there was also a lot of mention for higher value added services in India, that in the area of data analytics or R&D or things like this. Given the background that we had, we all, always felt that India is, you know, as a country and a the talent pool that we have here is very capable of uh, delivering on very high-end services from work. So the focus from the very beginning was on what is now called KPO, which process outsourcing. 
that is actually a, a segment or an industry that I had in some sense coined for which Prime Minister Manmohan Singh also gave me an award for that. So it was as typically would happen in any new company. You start out, you start selling, you start making mistakes, you have process evolution in your quality process. But some of the things that I realized in that journey was, one, of course, we as a country are capable of doing a lot of very interesting work, very high-end cutting work. Second, quality is very important. So you, one has to focus on quality right from the very beginning. And third, at the end of the day, it all comes down to people, the kind of people that you have in your organization, the kind of roles you put them in. So a lot of times companies, especially startups, make this mistake of putting a wrong person in a very typical role or there being a organizational structurally speaking, there being a lot of noise. And uh, this is something I later on learned at uh, Harvard when I had gone there for an executive course. It ultimately, it comes down to excellence. So a lot of companies, and especially startup companies and who get very well funded, they somehow believe that if they expand quickly, then that is what is going to lead to valuation. So you should never expand at the cost of excellence and quality. Excellence is actually scale and scale is not scale. That's fascinating. How do you embed excellence into an organizational DNA? Does it come from the founders that they are obsessive about excellence and therefore it becomes part of the culture? Or can it be introduced through processes? And what's the way to build excellence as part of your DNA? Yeah, so a couple of things here. This is a very broad topic and a long conversation can be had just on this one. But I think Peter Drucker, I think once said, I think that culture has a strategy for breakfast. Okay, which means that you can define whatever strategy you want. You can define whatever processes you want. You can have whatever technology you want. Actually, it's the softer part of any organization which determines success. And that is, by the way, more difficult to execute on. And that's why companies were able to do it completely become outliers because hardware, people, getting in people, setting in processes, getting in the software and everything is all all standard. There's no differentiation. So the reason I bring this up is ultimately the culture of any organization and specifically so in a startup, because in a startup, you are just growing and evolving and the culture also happens over the first few years. So you need to be careful that you won't let it happen. They have to be a set of values which are not only on paper and on your nice website, but a value system which you live and die by. It starts at the top. Because the founders themselves are not adhering to the value system which they themselves want to create. Why would anybody follow that value system? Learn from a colleague of mine that in Germany they have a saying that when a fish starts rotting, it rots head downwards. Okay. So the same is true in any organization. You can have whatever else, but if the management, senior management, founders are not walking the talk, are not living by example, are not adhering to use value system day in and day out, no matter what you do, things will fall apart. And how did they do customer acquisition? They had like someone in the US. So was that like a, a tough battle to convince people to outsource to India, especially high-end work? Yeah, yeah. So most of the companies in that model would have a onshore in the market kind of a sales force. Obviously, that's how it works. Okay. And it was during this stint that you were also a founder for Ashoka University. Tell me about that. So basically, there were some of us who were more from the IIT engineering background who wanted to do something in this space. 
There was another group of people who were also wanting to do this, but more from a liberal arts perspective. And through a friend, all of us came together in uh, in the year 2008. Uh, actually, for the first two years, we were exploring seriously about setting up a engineering college. But then over time, we realized that liberal arts also, there was a work to be done, especially in India. That's when we started trying to conceptualize, and then of course, execution in terms of all the other things, putting together a team, raising philanthropic money, and things like those. So that all followed. And what is the headcount that they take in each year? Like just in terms of impact, like how many students do they impact? You know, I don't know the numbers now, but I think on campus right now, there would be more than 2,500 students. Um, we are probably about 500 now. Okay. This led to Plaksha also eventually, like this experience kind of, like why Plaksha when you already were part of one university? Why did you also go ahead with the second university, like being a founder there? As I mentioned, uh, some of us in the early time uh, wanted to set up an engineering college, right? So that became Ashoka and Liberal Arts and Sciences, absolutely wonderful initiative. But in 2015, I had an opportunity to start thinking about Laksha as well. And in a forum, then we were discussing along with some, some other people around the need for a modern day tech university in the country. So that sort of gave me an idea that why don't why don't I think about getting involved in a second university initiative? And that's when again spoke to some of my friends from the earlier days who were interested in doing something like this. And then some five, seven, eight of us got together in 2015-16 time frame and started working on Plaksha at that point in time. I think around 2016 is when you left EvalueServe. So what was the triggers that made you want to leave EvalueServe? Well, EvalueServe was very simple. I just wanted to do something else. I've been doing this between 16 years. I just wanted to. And actually also I wanted to take a break. And even working like this almost 22 years, 23 years. And along with that, I also wanted to give myself an opportunity to just be with myself. So I realized that what I really enjoyed doing the most was to build something and be part of institution building. And the other thing which I had always realized that one needs to stick to one's core and the whole area of knowledge services and everything, I knew something about it. So in 2018, then I founded Valori Knowledge. How was it different from EvalueServe or was it largely like a similar kind of business segment that you were targeting or? I mean, the question is not how it was different or not different. The question is what I wanted to do. In my evaluation of so many business plans around that time, and then I was also having dinner with a prof of mine from HBS and he was also talking about how a lot of companies, and especially in emerging markets, are stuck inside this iron triangle of cost quality and time towards information, intelligence, and insights. Can you go a little deeper on that? Yeah, so a lot of companies, and when I was going through these business plans, startup founders, I was meeting them. They actually did not know a lot about their customers, about their competition, about their markets, so on and so forth. So there was a knowledge breakdown in some sense. Either the cost of that knowledge was too high, or the quality of that knowledge was too low, Turnaround time that some of their uh, partners would take to give knowledge was uh, again too high. So they were stuck inside that triangle 
They did not. I, I met other companies which were much larger, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 crores in turnover. They were facing the same issue. So I put everything together and I said, look, for, why don't I, I have a more of an India-focused APO, which can help so many of these good companies in unshackling themselves from that iron pound. And again, there were whole India notion behind it also, which was that so many of these companies are good, but because of lack of this intelligence and these insights, they are not able to unleash their own potential. And because of that, they have a lesser growth rates and because of the Lesser growth rate, there isn't enough job creation in the company. All of these great companies, good companies with all these insights and data and everything at a, a cost-effective and a high-quality manner. And they probably will be able to do better, grow more. And with that, they will have more job creation in the country. I want to make my own little contribution towards that also with the time for years. Let me just recap my understanding. So the Iron Triangle is basically that if you want high quality, like if you want the quality access to be high, then the cost and time access will also become high. So then if you want high quality information, then it will also cost you more and will also take more time. And that kind of was restricting companies from really using the data. We are in a data rich era today where there are a lot of sources from where the raw data is available, but companies are not really able to convert that raw data into knowledge and build on it for better decision making. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's it to be a huge problem and there are many more uh, Benori knowledges around here. What was your first project like? Tell me what, what problem did you solve or how, how did you help a company to get access to knowledge uh, which helped them to optimize? So the first project that we actually worked on, a friend who is a VC, he actually called me and he said that he wants to keep a track of 500 startups. Okay, like his portfolio companies or just potential investments. And that was really the first project. And it was a very cost-effective uh, project for our client. And at the same time, every two three, uh, two weeks, we would all these data points, there were about 24 different data points that we would collect for these 500 startups. And over the first year, then we almost built a time series, right? Uh, and then the client, then as soon as they would see some virality in any of those companies, they would pick up the phone and talk to them and say, look, let's talk if we can invest. So that, how would you, like you said, every two weeks you would update the data. Where was this data coming from? Was it like the company submitting? I don't think the companies would submit every two weeks. It's all uh, domain data. So get it from a website. You can scrape some of that. L like, for example, LinkedIn can tell you headcount. So every two weeks you can update headcount or like you can see number of Twitter followers or Instagram followers or maybe there is some way to see the search, uh, how many people are searching for that name. And what happened with that is we started covering that uh, in terms of industry segments. So there was something around food, there was something around head tech or something around health tech or something around fintech and things. And now actually not for that particular client, but otherwise we do a lot of benchmarking in a given sector. So in sustainability or climate, if they are, let's say, and we go, we also work for very large companies, operates, we work for large consulting firms and so on. So essentially this ability to track a certain segment or certain kind of companies or markets, that is for an investment firm, it has got translated into saying that, look, here is my portfolio company. Here are five other peers in the in that particular segment. So on a quarterly basis, can you just keep on tracking all these peer companies? 
and give me some benchmarking report. I think this is all on the basis of publicly available data. Okay. And uh, I'm guessing like you, this is the kind of business which does not need funding as such. It's because it's a services business and you would need funds just for that initial period until the client pays you. Correct. You're absolutely right. And fortunately, we are doing okay. So where is a surplus? And this is not a capital intensive business model. So really, my plan is to more of a build up for not a startup, but more of a business over the next 10, 15 years. So you're absolutely right. This doesn't require much capital. Tell me your go to market. How did you acquire this first customer? The first customer I'm assuming would have been through Personal connections and network, right? Yeah, that was an inbound call from a friend, right? So serendipity. Yeah, yeah, okay. So it, it's very similar to what any other professional services firm would have in terms of to market. Over the years, we had to, when we started, we would be like like an amoeba kind of a thing. Wherever we would see some food, we will go and get it. Right? But over the first uh, two years, uh, from whatever we ended up doing and delivering, we realized that some bucketing started happening of our solutions. So there's a lot of work which happens in strategy support. So go to market sizing models, peer-to-peer benchmarking, expansion, things like those. A lot of stream of work that was happening there. The second area where a lot of work was happening was in sales enablement. And this is in the B2B space, so enterprise sales area. So companies would want to figure out their clients, get profiles made of their clients, or a new prospect that they want to go after, they would want some short profiles of them. And the other area where we saw a lot of work is in the area of content, white paper generation, thought leadership generation, and things like that. And as I say, content marketing is the only form of marketing left in the area. And the basis of it, AI adoption by certain industry sectors, or how are people thinking about COP26 and sustainability issues and climate change issues in the future? So we end up writing a lot of such white-labeled white paper, right, to our client and they would do whatever they want to do. The third thing which we saw a lot of work happening in is in the classical market research area. And that industry also in India is has been struggling to deliver quality over the years. There are a few companies which are good companies, but mostly the quality aspects of market research projects in India has not been very high. So we not only do B2B servers, but we also do B2C servers. But our strength lies in that area of primary research, being able to interview key stakeholders. We can also do multilingual work. A lot of companies in India are expanding in the Middle East or Southeast Asia, and they would like to understand the lay of the land in those markets as well. So what we saw was this clustering of all these solutions. So we actually went down from 25 different things that we were doing to these five or six that we do now. The other thing that we saw was a consulting firm on one side, investment firms on the other side, and especially the startup community had a lot of requirement for bandwidth, you know, smart bandwidth. So a lot of consulting firms who are clients of ours, they had more work and of course then COVID happened, but post-COVID demand just erupted, right, in the professional service. So there, they would have work, but more people to deliver. So where they started outsourcing some of their research, part of their projects to us. We now actually work for the top 10, 15 global consulting firms doing all kinds of interesting work for them. Right. Let me just go through each of these segments that you have spoken about. So the first segment you said is you do strategy support. So you would be competing with a McKinsey there? Like it would be similar to what? A- no way, no way. No. We are a research and data solutions we are a KPO company, right? A knowledge process, which means that 
it will be nowhere close to a management consulting firm like McKinsey, uh, way down in that in that value chain, right? The only consulting firm, we will never give recommendations. What we would give is value-added insights, well-communicated, well-documented through a process of secondary research, primary research, and data modeling. I'll give you a couple of examples of the kind of work we would do. Right? So there is a advisory client overseas they basically focus on sustainability and climate change okay and they essentially work in the investment domain where they advise funds the portfolio companies of funds around these issues from an investment point of view so they gave us just about 80 to 90 funds on their portfolio company and they said if you can give us profiles of all of these in terms of what they are doing in the area of sustainability and climate change. Then we would have to do secondary research, but at the same time, we would have to do a lot of talking to people, understanding what their plans are, how are they thinking about this project. Example, we also have a client, let's say, in the consumer goods industry, more linked with wellness and beauty and all of that. So there we provide a solution where there are a lot of different products, a lot of different markets that they would like to keep a track of. So what we call the tracking solution. In India, for the life insurance industry, we have a solution where you know all the life insurance companies have to put out in the public domain a lot of information every quarter get all that information clean it up and then visualize that in some dashboards in terms of how every company is doing on various parameters okay 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 well in edtech space somebody a private equity client of ours wanted to figure out the Tuition sector in India, right? And everything. So for that, we did about 500 surveys with students. Uh, we did about six, 500, 600 interviews with the tuition center owners and put it all okay. offering, right? So a client comes to us, be a consultant, could be an investor, could be a corporate, could be a startup, could be a VC. And process, we will put together the final solution for them. And th this is also the part of your business, which you call as classical research. The question is whether classical research exists in today's world, right? But yeah. Call it, like this telephonic surveys uh, is what classical research used to be. Surveys has always been part of classical market research, but the business research, there is data insights, there is data analytics, visualize and all of that. We are a research and data solutions company. Okay, got it. And what do you do for sales enablement? Give me some examples there. No, so uh, there is a, let's say an IT client of ours, right? They would want to constantly be on top of their clients, right? In terms of what is happening, news flow, where could they other opportunities for them to sell more of their services and solutions. This apply for new prospects, right? So they already have, let's say, five banks as clients of theirs or other 15, 20 banks that they would like to penetrate. So for those banks, they would like to get profiles of those banks in terms of org structure, in terms of financial performance, in terms of various other aspects of their business. And on the basis of profiles, they might see something there which enables their sales teams to pick up the phone and organize some meetings with the end client. So uh, what is the role of uh, digital in this? Is it in terms of the way your output is delivered to client, like instead of delivering them a PDF file, there is a login where they see real-time dashboards. Is that how you use digital? Or, or like, you know, what are the different ways in which you're using digital technologies? The question is, what all do you count under digital? So we are a, we 
deliver everything on the cloud, through the cloud, through internet, software platforms. So from a delivery perspective, obviously we use everything or technology. The place where I think really in our industry, what one has to think about is helping you use technology to deliver more efficiency, to deliver better quality. A lot of automations that one would do, right? You would have a certain process of getting information from the net in secondary research terms. Can you make that process more efficient? But to the best of my knowledge, there are a few companies who have some tools and uh, for example, the whole area of NLP, right? So a lot of companies in professional services industry are trying to figure out use cases for NLP. So really it's on the delivery in, in the project delivery process itself. Can you technology to become more efficient and become and have a better quality output but mostly i would say it's, it's a lot of talk and at the end of the day i think there are several use cases but i don't think anybody has cracked anything big so far okay do you have like an in-house tech team like coders and all and no uh, see in our business if today also you need to hire coders and you are in the wrong business right also available there the question the key question is how do you create use cases that's the key we have some uh, data modelers, we have some data people, but it's a small team. Uh, but we really would not uh, require to have any coders. Yeah, why I'm asking is because some of these service lines that you offer could actually become products. Like you talked about for sales enablement, something which helps a company track their customer base and peers. Like if they want to track banking segment, then they can track. Uh, and this could be productified and made available at scale through a subscription. You are absolutely right. So in fact, our insurance product is actually a product and we only provide it to some of our clients on a subscription basis. I think the evolution of products from services to products the world works is that we start with the services company. We start automating various parts of the service delivery and then assess and see if there are any products coming out. Exactly happened with us and the insurance product also. But what is your vision for Benori? Do you want Benori to be a house of products or to be a service company or say five, 10 years down the line? The 10 year vision would be to continue to scale the company, to build a wonderful institution, absolutely best in class, not only in India at a global level. Always focus on two things, which is values and excellence. You said that you wanted to focus on the Indian market. So is that still the case? Are you largely getting most of your revenue from India or? Do you also have global clients? Or? Mostly it is from India, but also at the same time, we do get some amount of work from outside. But that might also be for the Indian clients. So it's a combination, but the focus definitely is on the Indian market. W wouldn't your opportunity be much higher outside India, both in terms of profitability and just because you're billing in dollars and so both top line, bottom line? I mean, I wouldn't say it will be better or greater. Obviously, there a big opportunity outside India also, but let's not undermine the India opportunity. India opportunity is also very nice, very attractive. And also go back to what I said in the beginning, right? My, this whole vision of adding, we're obviously delighted to have clients from outside India, but this whole notion of adding more value here in India to these companies so that they can have more job creation. I think that is, that remains a very, very big mission for us. I've been very closely associated with some organizations which uh, promote mods Thai, for example. Do you support as a member of Thai? Are you also an angel investor? Or what are the ways in which you are involved with entrepreneur community? Yeah, so one is, of course, mentorship, being part of some of these events and so on. So ultimately, the idea is to be able to 
connect entrepreneurs to investors, to VCs. There are a lot of uh, platforms and a lot of forums where I did part of just doing that and things like those. But I think the most important value add is when it comes down to mentoring, one-to-one mentoring of founders, because mostly all of them are very, very energetic, enthusiastic, smart people. But oftentimes, because they're nothing against them because they're not being experienced, they would tend to make basic mistakes in their execution. So you spoke about being ready for near-death experiences. Has Benori had any such experiences so far or at EvalueServe? So I can talk about Benori. Yeah, I won't call it a near-death experience, but obviously in the in 2020, 2021, when first COVID was happening, we were in deep trouble to some extent, at least for the first six months of, of the COVID. Like new business stopped coming in. To talk to us, everybody was struggling to figure out what to do. And we were still not profitable at that point in time. That was a big challenge. But fortunately, that that time also forced us to take a step back and relook at our execution the way we were doing and what we realized and what we were what we had to do to survive was to start selling online because you could not meet people once you started doing that and once you became good at that then you could just sell to anybody anywhere are you profitable now yes we are profitable and what kind of Top line, are you expecting this year to be at? Or? You can go and check it out. <laughs> <laughs> and that brings us to the end of this conversation. I want to ask you for a favor now. Did you like listening to this show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in this show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. Write to me at ad at the podium dot in. That's ad at t h e p o d i u m dot in.